From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. All right, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, another virtual edition of Wharton Moneyball. We are all in the Pennsylvania area. We've got the whole crew here. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner. This is Cade Massey here to talk sports and analytics for an hour. We do this every week. We're doing it virtually during the time of pandemic. We will be back in person at some point. Gentlemen, good afternoon to you. I hope you are well. This has been a traumatic week or so. The show will be posted here in another couple of days. I hope it has changed in that time. But I know many things have caught your eye, but I'm curious what you're thinking about as we, as we roll into another conversation of sports analytics, COVID analytics, and the world we're living in. Well, I'll start us off. I mean, obviously, uh, there's been a tragic death, we could call it murder, uh, of George Floyd, which has unfortunately led to a bunch of riots uh, and protests around the country. And just relating it back to the topic of our show, um, you know, my concern, both for the welfare and the societal justice that needs to happen, uh, but also is that we're now seeing, you know, this has to violate the CDC and you know, other pandemic guidelines. And so we've talked a lot about on this show about how the disease spreads, about the timing of the disease and how uh, people that are going to be symptomatic, how long it shows. So my question to all of you is based on what we've learned now three months in, if there's going to be a spike in cases, in hospitalizations and in deaths, when do we expect to see that manifest itself? Because maybe as things were trending down, this may be something that actually adds as a, if you'd like, an outside spike to the system and things start to increase. It's a great question because I think, I mean, you know, I, I've been hearing this sort of two weeks figure a lot, right? Um, you know, like, oh, that, you know, there's like a two weeks lag in death from like whatever practices are currently happening. But several states have been opening for longer than two weeks now, right? They, you know, I think Georgia reopened, Georgia and Texas reopened uh, two, three weeks ago, I think. Um, and I just, I, I don't think we've seen in the number, like we haven't certainly seen in the numbers, I don't think. Uh, but, but, reopening, kind of spike. but reopening might be quite different, Shane, than in this case, like there might be 500 people at a Oh yeah, no, like, no, that's certainly right. I mean, we would gain information on how reopening or sort of a changing perhaps of social distancing practices might impact kind of a, a COVID like increase. But yeah, the, the kind of mass protests we're seeing right now obviously are kind of unprecedented. We don't really know what will happen out of those. Yeah, I just want to add one note that um, the two week is often the time to, to get sick, but right. sick enough to be hospitalized is a little more time than that. And then death is, is on top of that. So I think you're talking three or four weeks before you see any fatalities once someone has been exposed. I think what makes this particularly interesting is the opportunity to trace and track maybe a spreader event or an outbreak, um, rather than try to look for actual counts. Um, that'll come further down the line. But what we should potentially see is what has already happened in a couple of countries that have opened is identification of outbreaks. So Germany caught an outbreak in a church. Um, so a church got together pretty much full force and no one was wearing masks. And they, they, there was an outbreak there. So you wouldn't have noticed it in the sort of the, the counts, but they saw that, that churches indoors is basically not a good idea. So, so, and, Adi, if you didn't see it in the counts, how did they, how did they detect that? Oh, did someone they... got sick 
and 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 they traced uh, it and they traced it to the okay. to the church and in fact they the there was a, almost an idiotic response we didn't realize we were supposed to keep our masks on indoors um well you know we <laughs> we have some you know obviously the supreme court just ruled on a church on church related regulations but despite that there are churches now meeting there were pictures yes. i've seen i've seen pictures of you know not very socially distanced singing you know no mass church attendance and so you do you do begin to worry about those kinds of things I think there's also, I wouldn't necessarily uh, know that there's going to be a large sample size statistical analysis, but let's imagine you, you want, you're interested in what Adi and Shane described. Let's imagine you took the 50 or 100 cities, at least, where protests are happening right now. Let's imagine you used satellite imagery, which you could, and others, to detect possibly the number of people that were at those protests. Let's also imagine you could measure other things that we, we think might affect the spread, like the temperature. You could also imagine trying to come up with a measure, I don't know how easy this would be, of the you know, silent or the, the, the degree of, uh, let's call it shouting, or I, I don't know, if even measuring the sound levels, because maybe it has something to do with how much people are projecting. You could measure whether people were under what density people were at. So I'm just wondering, is there a way to go one level deeper in the analysis to measure kind of the density, the number of people, et cetera, that would give us a little more insight? It's very rough data, I know, but could there be anything we could do there? Yeah, well, I, I would be hard pressed to imagine it'd be that easy to collect all that data. But if, I you said, could, if you could, if you could, I think it would be interesting. I, I love the way you talked about the, 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 the volume, right? Because it seems that, that the sound level that you make seems to matter. And that in the fact, the churches and the synagogues, I'll throw that out, are considered to be potentially problems because there's a lot of communal singing and communal singing seems to be viral spreading. And that's a, an obvious concern. I will, I will say that most states um, and even Pennsylvania are now allowing services of certain sizes and um, the synagogue notices have all gone out and you're basically told to leave the singing to the cantor. I no one else is allowed to, to participate because of that. Um, but I think the really interesting thing that we might observe from all this, and it might actually be very interesting, if nothing really emerges, we might learn that outside is extraordinarily low risk which might have impact for sports. <laughs> yeah, no, and, 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 and I mean, I think that, will, that would be a really kind of nice result to come out of this. I mean, I, I think the kind of, the, the types of methodology you would kind of use to investigate this, things like contact tracing and stuff like that are so much more difficult mm -hmm. with outdoor kind of, you know, like something like this church, they presumably could contact, they could go back and identify every single person that was in that church. And, and and trace them out and you know you can kind of have a, a, almost like a closed system there something like a mass protest i mean i mean never mind that people don't actually want to be identified and traced coming out <laughs> of an event like that um it would be ex exceedingly difficult to do so anyway with so much flux of people in and out of an, an area or what you even define as the area of exposure and it's in the setting in an outdoor setting is just a lot more challenging um to investigate yeah, Adi, I like what you said. And matter of fact, you said this a couple shows ago as well, which is, look, we have small samples here. If we treat a sample as being a city or an area where there's a protest, right? And even if we have multiple nights, it's not like we're going to have thousands and thousands of data points here. But what we might learn, we might learn what doesn't seem to impact the spreading. I'm not saying we're going to be able to, you know, with high statistical power, but as you, let's make it up. Let's say there's 100 cities four to five nights of protesting, that's 500 nights of protesting. Let's imagine we check a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks from now, there doesn't appear to be any change in the trend. Okay, well, 
that's some evidence that maybe, you know, outdoors might have some moderating effects. If we do see differential, does it vary, as we said, on the volume, the, the temperature, the density of the people? I think there is learnings possible here, even if it's not, I'll call it, you know, final, final proof and evidence. Yep. You know, there's been a very, there's been some variation in how much mask wearing you see. So many of these protesters do actually wear the mask. It's incredible portrayal of 2020 in the United States. But we see a fair bit of that. And it, I, I've been struck recently by differences in mask wearing norms across the country because I spent the first nine weeks in a very different region than I'm in now. And we, we've talked a lot in the modeling about how mask wearing mitigates spread. But there's the reverse causality as well, that higher incidence increases mask wearing. And, the, and I'm, I'm beginning to wonder about the long-term consequences for the norms that get set. And again, back to, I've had this kind, of, this kind of a theme about sociology. We're missing the sociology or the norms play such a big role. There's a norm up here in Pennsylvania, in the Newark area, in New Jersey, to wear masks. There's no... You know, there's, there's nothing ne- negative about that. It's just what you do. And it's because of how bad things were for a long time. In other areas, which haven't been hit very hard, there's the, there's, it becomes a more political issue. It becomes a more complicated issue. The norm is what matters. And the norm becomes you don't wear a mask. And that's maybe it doesn't matter if this thing just goes away. But if this thing sticks around for a year, those norms are going to have consequences. And they're very, they're very different up here. I, I can tell you, from it's not just, I mean, I, I, was in a, I was in a rural, small town, rural Ace Hardware this past weekend, and everybody in there was wearing a mask. If you drop yourself into any small town, rural Ace Hardware in Texas right now, nobody's wearing a mask. It's just profound, the differences. Yeah. So what I tend to think about these things is that, so what would be, one could, there's definitely norms, but let's even just think of it from an analytics perspective. So what could make two smart, intelligent, thoughtful people but with different beliefs, one wearing a mask, one isn't, if it was purely from a statistical perspective. So you could have different beliefs on the sure. probability of getting it. Absolutely. You could have the different probability of, I may get it, but I'm not going to actually get severely ill from this. Or right. just, you know, it's an extremely low base rate type of event, or I will social distance, or, you know, I'm just saying there's lots of, you know, it's kind of like the weakest link. If you believe any of the things are essentially zero along the way, you can rationalize, and I'm not saying in a negative way, I'm not trying to be political, you could rationalize right. not wearing a mask. Right. You know, um, just to follow up, there's been really some really nice um, articles put out for the public uh, in some of the major media centers, helping people kind of break down different activities by risk level. Um, and which has been quite illuminating. I think most of us should read it. And they talk about, you know, restaurants versus various different outdoor activities and walking. And, and I think it's all very good. But one of the things that, that is the fundamental driver of risk is, is prevalence. And so how prevalent the virus is in the neighborhood and for coming from New Jersey, being in Philadelphia, spending time in New York, and that just where prevalence at its height was just absolutely massive. It's not wrong to go back to te- your rural Texas, Cade, and say nobody was nobody was wearing it because they didn't. It agreed. wasn't necessarily necessary. I, I agreed, but I'm wondering about the knock-on consequences of that. As, right. as so, two things happen: one, the norms get established, and then two, the virus changes over time. So, if 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 prevalence increases down there, 
mm-hmm. they've already established this norm of don't wear a mask or it's political to wear a mask. Right. Now you're in trouble. But I think or, or they, another way to say it is the complacency is maybe justified. It's almost like a justified complacency uh, in that like, first wave. Yeah. First wave. The trouble with complacency is you continue it and it may not be justified later. And that's the way in which I understand what Eric is saying about a rational model or a rationalized behavior fully. But there could be negative consequences. And if, they, if, if there is this um, um, momentum or norm, anything that pushes behavior that's not responding to a change in environment, then it's less rational. But, you know, one of the things that I think that we're missing, and we all think we all agree, is a, a, a national leadership which can set a simple precedent and simple solution that we could all follow. <laughs> so I, what I don't like is all this quibbling about outdoors. I think that there should be a national policy that people should be wearing masks indoors. Wherever you are in a public space, be wearing a mask. And in fact, today I, I was going to, to, to deliver some boxes to be, to be returned and I had forgotten my mask and I had to go back and turn around on my bicycle and go back and get one, recognizing that even though it probably is low risk, I'm, you have to wear a mask even, even though it is. Yeah, and we have to establish something simple, like San Francisco is now arresting people for not having, or not arresting, or fining people for not having a, a mask when you're jogging. And that's creating a lot of people, a lot of, a, a lot of political and, and also probably undeserved tension. Uh, but Adi, but Adi you, you, you just, didn't you just say that it's reasonable for a person to be complacent in a low prevalence area? So that's exactly. the downside of having a national. Yeah, I'd like something like a national. I mean, it, I, I think having a little bit more kind of uh, consistent and inspiring national guidelines would be somewhat helpful in, in, in these times. But I think basically that norm will just kind of, tra- the difference in norms will just translate into differences in compliance, right? Mm-hmm. You still will not get, you know, I mean, even if the, we had more consistent federal kind of messaging, I think you would still kind of probably, you'd probably see some of those dis- dis- differences that um, um, Cade noted in, you know, the ACE hardware in, 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 in kind of Philadelphia versus Texas, you'd probably still see that just because, you know, compliance is going to be driven and the norms on compliance are going to be driven in part by kind of how personally at risk people feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also almost feel like, you know, back to analytics and sports, you know, as I was preparing for today's show and something on baseball later on, I was thinking that, we have metrics in baseball, whether pitchers, hitters, et cetera, that kind of give us a sense. What I almost feel like we're missing here is like, suppose I told you the following. Suppose I told you that not wearing a mask indoors, which Adi just described, suppose I told you something like that was the equivalent of smoking half a pack of cigarettes a day, or that was the equivalent of driving 3,000 miles without your seatbelt on. Like, I almost feel like people don't know how to kind of equate probabilities and effect sizes to things that were more, there's no, you know, there's no unidimensional scale where we all get it. Like, I get a, I know what a 400 batting average is. I know what a 300 batting average is. I know how much better 400 is than 300. And so this is where I think a lot of the challenges are. There isn't just a, a common scale that we can all even, or language we can even use to talk about it. Mm-hmm. thing is, I'm willing to give up a little bit of, uh, I mean, under, if you will, undertake excess um, protection, even though I may not need it, if it achieves a societal good. Like, so for example, as I said, I'm willing to wear my, my mask indoors, even if the viral presence has receded so that it's so low that I really don't need it in some statistical sense, if that helps the country establish a norm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the way we, we do that, we have to recognize that 
Um, we have to give up, for example, on getting people to wear it outside because that's too much for too mm. many people mm. in too many places. And I've, what I'm noticing is, is that what we're seeing is, is too much of a polarization. It's either always, I mean, in my local lo lower Marion community uh, Facebook groups, you weren't, don't wear a mask outdoor, you're evil right? Because mm. that's, that's where you are. And then the other side of it, you have people in, say, Texas who refuse to wear it at all. We have to find some place in the middle that we can all agree, all everybody should follow. And then if you want to go stricter or, or, or stricter, that's really up to you. And social media is, as usual, not necessarily <laughs> the place to have like these kind of nuanced, no. you know, compromised <laughs> kind of conversations. Flexible policies. Maybe humans yeah. in general aren't super good with flexible, adaptive policies. Listen, there was one study that I want to hear a little bit about, and that's this HCQ study that came out. And the Lancet had a response, I think. So, Adi, you know a little bit about this thing, right? Yeah. So I've actually been following the HCQ from its very emergence um, on the political scene. Uh, Trump made a big deal of it as a potential game changer. It is an antiviral drug. It's been used for years to treat malaria. And we don't really know what it would do or not do in, in for COVID. And so there were a bunch of early observational studies that suggested that it might have a, a, a good effect. Um, those were as all our observational studies are very problematic because they're not experiments. They don't have a placebo control, double blind um, structure that allows you to determine cause. Recently, the, the, the Lancet published a giant observational study Instead of just a single hospital or a single practice, they integrated data from almost 90,000 cases from over 800 different hospitals. And they checked and they tried to do an observational study to compare mortality between patients on this HCQ with, I think, an erythromycin, uh, which is an antibacterial, and those who got nothing. And they found actually no effect. If anything, they found a, a, a negative effect of the drug. And this was really widely publicized. Um, a bunch of physicians, actually signed a letter saying that data set is hugely problematic and this is not a, uh, a final word. But as statisticians, I think it's important for us to point out two things. First of all, data quality is enormous and important. And so much of this data is, is HIPAA protected and, and you just don't know the different hospitals and around the world. But largely in an observational study where you don't have an experiment, what they do in the modern statistical community is replace um, treatment with control with probability of treatment. And we call that the propensity score. And what you're really doing is looking for people who have propensities who are not zero to one. So stuck in the middle. And then you get create what they call almost a pseudo experiment where you weight the data by this propensity. And that's exactly how they did that. Oh, 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 oh yeah. you got you to gotta go again on that one. If you're going to drag us into propensity scores. Uh, around, yeah, we've never done that. Carefully. Oddly enough, no, it's in worth, our show, it's, we've never talked and about and propensity, propensity score methods are typically not, I mean, it's not just a weighting of each individual. Often it's kind of the precursor to doing so, sort of creating some kind of matched pair design yeah. where you really right. are trying to emulate uh, yes. a, a randomized controlled experiment, so me, even though it's not. Real, real quick, this is worth doing because this is a rel I mean, look, everyone's trying to navigate the problem of not having an actual experiment. This is one way people attempt to navigate it. So let's hear a little bit about propensity scores. So let me just say, let's just, I'll say a little bit and then we can all talk to our colleagues. I'll say the first thing is that there's a giant literature on propensity scores and how they use them. Um, the second thing I'll say is uh, Wharton Statistics Department is a leading proponent or producer <laughs> of a lot of that material. And a lot of all our right. colleagues are world-class experts in that. So, and thirdly, it's been used widely as a way to do observational studies without and try to get experimental-like results. So mm -hmm. um, I will just say the first fact is that this, this thing that is called the propensity is, um, is, is, is an estimate of your probability being treated. And the application here is 
those pa- some patients got HCQ and those pa- some patients didn't. If there was a confounder that caused you to be in the treatment group, as in you're very sick, and in the control group, not so sick, you have to sort of find people who could have gone either way, and they become the backbone of your of your experiment. And, the, and often way, the way this is done is through matching. And, you, and there's a very complex literature, and I'll, I'll turn it over to some of you guys to fill out some other details. Well, yeah. The, oh, go ahead, Eric. The only the two details I was going to follow. First of all, as you guys both know, I mean, Paul Rosenbaum, who's on our faculty, he, it was his dissertation work was on propensity score matching. Uh, the first paper, you know, Rosenbaum and Rubin was 84, was one of the first papers really to lay out the theory of propensity scores. Um, the, the part that's interesting about propensity scores, a lot of people might be listening to your description, Adi, which is a good one, and say, well, why do you ever need an experiment then? Why don't you find propensity scores and just match people? And I would say one of the challenges in propensity scores is you need a set of variables measured on the people that are accurate predictors of who, what's the probability you would have gotten or chosen to take HCQ versus not. So without that set of variables and without it measured, or with the ability to measure it on a new set of the population for which you then need to do a prediction on, it's nice to write down the theory of propensity scores, but to do it, you better have good X's, good good variables that predict these propensities. Yeah, Yeah, and I mean, just to follow up on Eric's kind of the, 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 the beauty of something like a propensity score matching is that you essentially are creating kind of comparison groups, um, that have a uh, you know that are they're they're similar similar to each other on kind of all the very you know all the variables that you can use to go into that propensity score like their background demographics economic situation etc. But it, it's only constructed based on you know what variables you put into that the kind of known potential differences between individuals the be- the, the the limitation and the corresponding beauty of a randomized control trial is the randomization is going to create kind of balanced compare should create balanced a balanced comparison group not just on the observed sort of variables like demographics but also on all the unobserved variables like genetics etc so just to make it really concrete in this example, um, of the 90,000 patients they had or alleged to have, and there's some controversy about what they have and didn't have, information on the severity of the illness, which is a hugely important- That would important, be a big help. Because if, if the more severe people got the treatment, then, then you would see a greater mortality among the treatment group rather than the control group. So they did get two numbers which measure severity. One was a, was a, a medical- um, some number that, that measures the, the extent in your lungs. And the other was an oxygen, um, um, oxygen deficiency number. But what they didn't tell you was what happened in the first 48 hours that led you to get the, the treatment. And that was, could be enormously variable hospital to hospital. And I can tell, tell you from some of the personal anecdotes that I've heard from friends whose parents have been treated is that uh, many hospitals in the United States were using HCQ as experimentally. It's what we call off-label. So it's not, even though its efficacy has been yet to be proved for treating COVID-19, it is a, a drug that can be prescribed because it's legal to prescribe for other illnesses, particularly lupus and, and malaria. So what would happen in, in the individual anecdotes that I've heard is that um, often they would just monitor you for a certain amount of time. And if your case started to worsen, then they would give you the HCQ because it is dangerous. And none of that, that particular, what we call confounder, is not in the data set. So you don't even know what it, a potential, like absolute driving um, confounder is not, it's missing. And so a, an observational study like this, no matter how much matching on propensity you, you do, if the propensity isn't estimated properly, 
then you might not get a, a valid result. And therefore, and that's really the backbone of, uh, an, of an observational study and it's, its major criticism, which is why we might be waiting until July, which is when our first randomized controlled trials are completed. So just to be real clear, the, the worry is that those who were most sick got the HDQ. And so if the, if the result was null, there was no difference in the groups, that might actually be a positive because worse off patients got it. So catch us up to speed, because I thought we were done with HDQ. I thought, I thought some, didn't France call off some clinical trials because people were dying? Yes. Was that, is, it, is it the case that that's a premature conclusion that the, that the jury is in fact still out on HDQ? Well, I, I'll, I've been following it fairly close. Um, so it looks like it is generally not a good bet to give to sick people, which seems very funny to say, right? And what I mean by that is if you're sufficiently hospitalized, sick to be hospitalized, to be in, in real deep concern, you're probably, it doesn't look like there's any benefit. The open question is whether it provides benefit in terms of shortening the illness to otherwise more moderately or mildly severe individuals. That is, and in fact, the earliest indications were that it would only treat um, moderately mild um, sick people. In fact, I went on Dan Loney's show and after reading some of the data, and I mentioned just that. And I essentially said, I don't think this is going to work to save lives. You're just not going to see a lower mortality rate. But you might see, and some of the early randomized control trials out of China suggest that this is true, you might see a shorter illness, which is uh, not a bad result. Is it actually for, for that for that set of people, the sick people that you would not give it to, uh, would not want to give it to? Is it actually detrimental, or is it just has like no positive effect? I think it has side effects, which are are yeah. potentially too detrimental to work to to be worth giving. I'm just going to comment that Adi's point brings up that what we may end up seeing is one drug to shorten it if I get it another drug to prevent it. I'm not a believer right now that we're going to just find one vaccine that's going to prevent remedy, shorten, et cetera. We may be doing three or four different things. Well, and this is, again, this is something we've said, but it stands re restating that this is one of the reasons you want to wait as long as possible before you get it. You want to get this thing as late in the cycle so that there more of these remedies have come online, they've become available, we've figured out how to use them. The, the, the outcomes are going to get better the later we go in this thing. Um, just to, to follow up two points, um, remdesivir, the Gilead drug, seems to drop mortality from substantially. I mean, it's not that powered, but so the confidence interval is big, but it looks like it drops mortality substantially. And that's a good thing. The other is, uh, seems to be some news coming out of Italy that the virus is uh, weakened. Weakened? What is weakened. That? It doesn't kill. It's not as deadly now as it was uh, three months ago. Is that weather related or is the virus itself changing? Uh, they say that it is mutated and it is not as deadly. Right. I read the same study. Um, there, there could be lots of explanations, whether self-selection stories, et cetera. But the one they've given so far is that the virus itself is actually weakened. Well, terrific, terrific news. There's some good news. We haven't had good news in a while. I'm glad to hear it. We will, on that note, step away for a break, but we've still got another half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second half hour, we talked COVID-19 analytics up top, as we usually do. It is the world we live in, and it does affect our sports. In this half hour, more sports-specific. There's not a lot more sports, but there, there's a lot of talk about more sports coming soon. All the big leagues are talking about getting it out, which would be good fun. 
um, some of the most interesting conversation guys, y'all are baseball people and there's plenty of interesting baseball talk. It's unfortunately not quite as optimistic as it is in the other leagues. What's going on in baseball? Are we going to see, are we going to see something? What did I just see? The players want to play more games. They want to play a hundred games. Is that it? Adi. I know that there's a lot of back and forth. You know, a week ago, it looked like no baseball. Then it went hundred percent baseball. And now I don't know where it is. Um, it seems that they're arguing about revenue sharing and, um, and one that's of the arguments like made, they are, they are that's what about. they are. But it's interesting from a perspective, their perspective, the, the owners want them to take basically share the revenue loss equally. I think that I'm not sure if that's completely fair, but that sounds like their argument. And the, the player's response is when you do well, you don't share it equally. Um, so it's interesting kind of a statistical argument they're making. Um, you don't give us the upsides when things go really well. Of course, the counter argument is baseball is one of the most protected contractual um, uh, sport among sports. In other words, you can, you can sign a 13 year contract, like say Bryce Harper did and maybe two or three years in get injured and retire. And you know, there's, there's the Bobby Bonilla contract that pays for the next century. Um, so baseball players have always been pretty good in terms of guaranteed money. Um, so it's hard to know so where top, we should the, stand at the, the top, top 1%, end. at the top end, at the top end. Yes, indeed. So let me, let me throw something else out there, which is a major source. We, statisticians, we study uncertainty. Suppose I asked you, let's imagine they played a hundred game season. I asked you to forecast the viewers on let's say television etc that you're going to get for these games and you might say well we, we've got lots of seasons of baseball do you have any seasons of baseball where baseball may be directly opposite the nfl the nba the nhl mm -hmm. etc so the reason <laughs> i would be quite concerned if i was an owner or if i was just how much money is going to be generated baseball usually the dog days of summer it's baseball nba season is over the NFL hasn't started. The NHL is over. Soccer's wound down. You may have baseball opposite every other major sport right now, which could dramatically depress the number of people watching it and therefore a lot of the revenue that could generate. And, and if you continue on that theme, Eric, baseball has always generated an enormous amount of revenue through ticket sales. It's a 162-game season with typically a 50 or 40 to 50,000 seat arena, which an average attendance is around 30,000. I don't think there's a sport that generates that many, you know, seats in the stands or oh, not even close, not even close. And, and, and one of the great, one of the beauties about baseball is that many people who go to go to a game, maybe two or three a year will watch on TV. Not more than that. Mm -hmm. It is, it is not a game that has generated enormous amounts of revenue um, outside of say New York through, through television. I think what, what do these what do these dynamics mean for who has leverage in this negotiation do you, and, and whether we think we'll get a deal at all? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, this they've said this all the time in negotiations, you have billionaire owners playing millionaire players. And so to me, the leverage is with the owners. Um the owners, uh, not only the leverage, but as Shane said, they're the ones that determine what the total revenue is and therefore what the profit share is. I know there's auditing and all of that, but at the end of the day, I think the owners have the leverage here. I mean, and the main leverage they have is they can sort of at some point in these negotiations just sort of decide, you know, they can kind of have the same discussion we've been having about how their ticket sales are a huge part of their revenue and they don't make as much money from TV and they could just decide it's not in their financial interest to actually have the season. What I have concerns about also, again, let me go back to something I said last week from an analytics perspective. Like, 
I know it's going to sound strange, but I know how to do 162-game math. Like, part of baseball is, okay, so somebody has 30 home runs at the break. Someone's got this many doubles. Now, I understand I can do math into 100 games, but I mean, part of baseball is following the metrics and the statistics as the season is going on. I think there's going to be a loss of interest in baseball in part because people know this season's going to have an asterisk next to it, no matter what happens. Shorter season, records, we've talked about this. Let's say in 100 games, someone bats 406 this year and ties Ted Williams. Is anyone going to count that as 406? I mean, what if the person has 300 no. at-bats? You're not, you're, not, you're not telling a great story for baseball here. First, you're saying yeah, you, you can't compete against football and hockey and basketball. And by the way, if your stats aren't divisible by 162, no one wants to watch. That's pretty fragile interest. That's a pretty fragile picture. And I love and, baseball. And I'm concerned. Okay. Well, I, and I love baseball, but very little, I think, of my kind of excitement about this upcoming season is based on, like, I've already kind of, like, it's not, it's just going to be a year we take off from historical comparisons, right? We're just not going to be able to really do anything with this year as far as comparing stats, and everything will have an asterisk. And I think but... that's an important part of baseball. All right. No, it is. Knowing that does not personally detract from my excitement for this upcoming season. Let me give you a counter, not that I'm really countering, but let me tell you the good news. A no-hitter is just going to be just as good. And a 500-foot home run is just going to be just as impressive to watch. And while we won't have season totals that will be readily comparable to other seasons, we'll still have epic performances and beautiful catches and and dramatic home runs. And and there'll be a season and there'll be a World Series and all that will still be there and I think will generate our interest. I'm also hopeful, maybe maybe not in the immediate short term, that once um, we get to play and once we learn more about the virus and, the, and its community spread, we'll start to see fans. My last point about, about sports and the balance between the owners and the players, I really think that given not only the COVID and the quarantining and the isolating, that's been a crushing blow, but also the riots, the protests, put it together, I think that both sides have a responsibility to society to bring us back sports because sports is an important society stabilizer, in my view. It keeps it's it, being out, being able to play sports and also being able to watch sports is just good for our equanimity. No, I look, I completely agree with that. I'm just also concerned. Let me ask you a question. Let's imagine I was just watching a thing on baseball yesterday about I didn't realize I, maybe you guys realize it. There's only been I think 21. Or I think it was 21 or 23 perfect games ever yeah. thrown. Yeah. Let's imagine three perfect games get thrown the first week that they're back because it turns out pitchers <laughs> turn out to be much better prepared to come back than hitters. Are you going to count those perfect games? This is when we, I'm just countering your point. I don't want to be Mr. Negative. I love baseball. Are, my favorite totally sport to go to. I love oh, baseball. But are you going to count? You guys said you could a 500-foot home run counts as 500 feet. Well, there's a perfect game. Counts as a perfect game. Yeah, if, gonna, if there's a dynamic gonna. that increases the perfect game rate – like a, a new dynamic that increases the rate of perfect games like that, that is going to be nothing but fascinating to me. Here's the dynamic that goes against it. What's this story about the DH? They're going to go all DH. Is this set in stone yet? Is what? 
update me. Adi, you poor man, you poor traditionalist. How do you feel about this? I think it may have to do with the fact that scheduling is going to be hard. And so all the things they do to balance out the one day a week, and it might be make it very difficult to have to have two separate leagues with different sets of rules. So I also feel that a lot of bets are off this year. And as a consequence of bets being off, a lot of things that I would see would not be willing to contemplate in a normal year. I'd love to see this year, including robo umps. Aren't you scared about the precedent? I'm scared of not having baseball. (laughs) I mean, I I, I thought the, I thought the kind of the, the, the abandonment of the DH was at least the preliminary thought on that was back when we, the the plan was perhaps to only have a, a couple different locations where baseball is played and they would have to kind of, you know, they wouldn't necessarily be able to kind of like, there wouldn't be necessarily a, an AL NL kind of, they wouldn't have the same scheduling ALL that they have had. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, I just want to say as a, as a Martian watching baseball, I mean, one out of nine at bats being pointless is seems, seems like a bad use of, of resources, but I, I I appreciate the traditionalists. So let's talk a little bit of football. And before we dive in, let's, I want to talk about these one loss totals. So FPI has predictions out. We can talk about Massey Peabody, but there's this interesting bit about, George Kittle, the all-pro tight end out of San Francisco, wanting wide receiver money. And it raises this question of, is any tight end worth wide receiver money? Curious what you guys think. Yeah, so there was an interesting article about this. There was an analysis that was done about the excess wins by position. And I made an assumption, which at least this empirical analysis suggests I was wrong, was that actually the tight end is not worth considerably less than the wide receiver. And so um, George Kittle has already said, forget that I'm a tight end, which I think the maximum salary of the tight end might be somewhere in the 10 to $12 million range. But of course, wide receivers are more in the 14 to $16 million a year range. And he said he wants wide receiver money. And so at least the analysis I read suggests from a extra win probability or wins above replacement perspective, he may not be wrong. There was not a statistically significant difference between the, if you'd like, the value of a top tight end versus the value of a top wide receiver. And I, and I think that's the key point. Is, and I think the, this kind of wins above replacement or some comparable kind of stats, the right framing that, you know, I, I think it, it, it makes sense that it, if you take the average tight end in the league, they probably contribute less wins above replacement than the average receiver because they, on most teams and in, for most tight ends, are not as offensively important of a position. But the top tight end, somebody like Robin Gronkowski or, or, or George Kittle, could easily contribute themselves more wins above replacement than the average wide receiver would. And those guys do deserve to kind of be compensated that accordingly. So the, we're talking about a, a new paper by Andrew Hughes and Corey Kittle. Kittle I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm pronouncing Corey's last name wrong from the University of Missouri and Joshua Price at Southern Utah. And what I really like about this is any attempt to estimate position value because it's, mm-hmm. it's terrifically important and basically not done in football. It's just been impossible to do in football for years. You know, baseball is so far ahead of us with baseball creates war and here comes football 30 years later talking about war. I don't know how well this is done. I think a lot of people are going to try it for a long time before we agree on anything, but it's fantastic movement on a front on one of the most important frontiers in football analytics. Yeah, I was just happy to see that someone had done an analysis of this, and I was just happy to see that at least there was 
some way to kind of look at this and say, is there some empirical evidence that maybe he's not wrong? Well, one of the best features here, and you guys are picking up on it, is we, we're, we're too quick to just compare average compensation at each position or average value at each position, and we don't consider the extremes. We don't consider the, the far right tail of each position. And when you go out to sign players, the decision that teams have to make is exactly that. I have a choice of signing, say, two starters or an all-pro guy and a backup. What's better? Well, you, need, you need to know about value as a function of performance quality, not just the average value. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to see this in football. And let me compare, ask you a question, you f- football aficionados and experts. Um, in baseball, there's a big difference between a position, let's say catcher, for example, where there's really only one or two really, really good ones and everyone else is kind of necessary but mediocre and say a, a position where almost everybody's good but if you don't have one of those good people you really suffer so it's not necessarily just the top but it's also the distribution of talent mm-hmm. that matters to mm-hmm. determining the value and and how much variance is there in football across those positions is there a position in football like catcher where you need oh, yeah one? i was just about to say that, that that makes me think of because even in baseball they do struggle with that aspect the kind mm-hmm. of like the scarcity of say offensive production out of the catcher position in in general it's hard to therefore value you know the catchers that do bring that kind of dramatic offensive production mm-hmm. and the same thing with kind of scoring tight ends basically tight ends yeah. that can really catch yeah i couldn't agree with Adi more as a matter of fact it was the it was the point i was thinking of which is yeah. you could actually argue that the top hot member if the measure you're going to use i'm not saying it's the right one is wins above replacement well the top tight end may actually have a much higher war than the top wide receiver because the average wide receiver might still be very, very good. So the average tight end, the the top tight end, might actually have a much higher win above above replacement, not of the second best tight end, but of the average player you could insert in there. So actually, Adi, I think you're entirely right. The distribution matters tremendously here. So you'll be glad to know that one of the few papers out there, I'm seeing this Hughes Hughes at all paper is the newest edition, but there are very few people who have done it at all. But Paul Sabin with ESPN has done it, and he, he went and he, in a very neat analysis, he, he used play-level data and, and ran kind of an adjusted plus-minus. You can think about it as an adjusted plus-minus. But everything, you guys would be very glad to know, was built around this hierarchical Bayesian framework. And so he's got some priors on things that come from various places, and then he estimates and updates. And what you end up with is a distribution of player quality at each position and indeed, you do see different amounts of variance by position. And that's really important input for you as you build your rosters and make your hiring decisions. I, I don't have it in front of me at the moment. I can't tell you. But I can tell you that one of the things he found, now this is just his first effort, but one of the things he found in college <clears throat> was that center was surprisingly important. It was the most unexpectedly valuable. Now, it has nothing to do with the variance, but on just in terms of importance, the mean contribution was highest for center. But Paul's work is really neat, and he's, and he's going to keep on put, putting out some new stuff. He's one of the few people working. And you guys, you Bayesians, would be especially happy because it's all this kind of sophisticated Bayesian framework. But if you, if you now translate that into to salary, let me, let me give you two circumstances, and then you offer your opinion. What if there is a, a position, say center, I don't, whatever it is, where there's uh, almost every player, well, every team has, a, has an equally good and valuable position player but there isn't enough to go around so there's a few that get stuck without them and that's one 
uh, possibility. The other is reverse, where almost everyone is kind of mediocre and equal. And there's a couple really exceptional ones. What, what do you pay those? In, how do you figure out salary? Do, in, in the situation where almost all are good, but you really need one, do they all get a modest amount of money? Or how do you figure that out? That, that, and that, and, and that, add in the dynamic of a salary cap and the fact yeah. that it's kind of an auction sort of a system as far as you know, paying them. That, that's a weird distribution, though. That seemed like a weird scenario. I understood the second scenario where there's, they're, they're kind of grouped, kind of average with a few outstanding yeah, standards. Yeah. I don't understand the other distribution. It seems kind of an unusual one that you would have a bunch of average, low-valued, low-variance guys, and then a, and, but a scarcity of them. Well, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 clo- the closest weird. I can come to it is kicker, where, like, you know, I would mm-hmm. say, like, maybe like 25 or so teams have a kicker that they kind of rely on. And, okay, and, and, and then there's like yeah. always like the Chicago, there's always one or two teams like Chicago or whatever that spend their entire season <laughs> trying to figure out their kicker situation. You're just, you're just rubbing salt in old wounds there. Well, that, yeah, maybe, maybe that, that, that's too recent. Off. I mean, yeah, there's been lots of other cases besides Chicago. I Adi was asking a different question about asymmetry, which is you could make an argument of paying someone a lot under two conditions. One is there's a lot of good ones and you don't want a bad one. And therefore, you're willing to pay a lot to not have a bad one. Or there's only a few good ones and all the rest are bad and you want to pay for one of the good ones. So in either of those cases, you could make an argument that the salary would be high. In one case, yeah. it's to prevent a bad one. In the other case, it's to acquire a good one. Mm-hmm. And so I... And I'm just saying it's, it's, I'm sure people study this all the time. It's about, you know, whether it's loss framing versus gain framing, et cetera. But I'm saying either of those two could lead to George Kittle getting a very high salary. Guys, let's talk about what FBI came out with. Uh, we, maybe 10 days ago, eight, nine, 10 days ago, something like that. They have their FBI win total. So FBI is, uh, I don't know, football power index. It's ESPN's power ranking. It's very good. I think it's as good as there is available publicly. And um, so they run their sims and based on their power rankings and schedule strength and all that stuff, you get these win totals, which is great fun. So anything jump out to you about what they're talking about there? Well, I mean, I kind of, I mean, I was kind of looking for sort of things that like uh, teams that have moved big in kind of the, you know, compared to, you know, say last season or whatever. And obviously Tampa Bay and new England kind of stand out as two teams that have moved a lot for, for, for obvious reasons. Um, the other one that I think is kind of intriguing that I, just based on kind of their, their, their Sims is um, what's happening, what, what they predict will happen in the AFC South. Um, I think that's kind of an interesting one just because, you know, they have Indianapolis basically as their top team coming out of that division. Um, and I, I just think that's interesting in the context that two teams from that division made the playoffs last year and, and Indianapolis was neither one of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Eric, I'm always interested in, you know, what we talk about when we talk about, you know, the maximum number of wins predicted and the minimum number of wins predicted. And you look at that and you say, well, how could they possibly only pick the maximum team to have like 10 and a half wins or 11 <laughs> wins? And you're like, you know, there's going to be some team that has more than that. But again, as we why, always why talk about, it, which tell, us, team? tell us that one. Why is that Eric? Good question. Well, again, you're taking, you're having 30, whatever, 32 teams and you're, whatever, 32, and you're taking the maximum number of that. And so that, that has, you know, less error in some sense than saying, I'm now going to pick this particular team because this particular team has more randomness in it than the maximum of 32. 
And right. so any given team, like for example, it has Kansas City at 11.2 wins. I think most of us are like, I don't know, that seems like too low for Kansas City this year. But yeah, it, it seems too low for Kansas City, <laughs> but it, you know, not obvious. But, but Eric, this is, I, mean, you're, I, I think you're making a terrifically important point, and this is because these guys are sophisticated. You, if, if, you, if they were presenting a, a forecast here of the distribution of final one-loss records, Correct. it would be very different. If you said, what's the probability that the best record in the league is 13-3, and three, they would say 50% or something. And even though there's no one even close to 13-3 and three here, and that's because this is a different exercise. They're trying to their their forecasts are appropriately regressive. This is your point, of course. Yep. And I, I just I think it's a nice feature of ESPN's analytics shop right now. I and mean, these are sophisticated folks that are working with good simulations, and this is what we're seeing. Yeah, and I, and I, sorry to interrupt, but like I think it's a nice a nice aspect of the simulation based part of this that they actually kind of have coherent. Yeah, like right. we, projections in general. Like I remember back before people did this via simulation, you'd have like these kind of projections where like, you know, there'd be twice as many projected wins across the entire league as there were losses or something like that. Cause it's like way easier to project on the high end than you the low get end. It. You still get it from some journalists. Um, anyone interested in knowing or have calculated how different the FPI forecasts are from simply a reordering or, or just maintaining the order from last year? I mean, oh, most of the forecasts so far early in the season, with a couple of exceptions, probably the Tampa Bay Buccaneers mostly, and I think not even the Patriots, they're down a little bit, but not that far, um, is pretty much last year's ranking, right? I mean, how correlated are this year's forecasts with last year's ranking? I would guess pretty darn high. And you know the and answers? I, I don't well, know. You the mean answer. the end of season ranking from yeah, last yeah. year? Yeah, no, the end of season. So, really, the end of season rankings, you could say the record as well, but yeah. whatever you knew at the very end of the season. And then, and then if you simply had carried over that to this year, you're, that's mostly what we're seeing. Well, especially right? Tampa Bay is much higher than they were last year. Yeah, I, there's a few right. more like that. I mean, Tampa Bay and the New England, Indianapolis moved up a lot, I think, with the, the so Philip Rivers these, acquisition. Yeah, these individual players move things around. But I you, know, you know that there's, there's a fair bit of regression to the mean in NFL. I mean, records, the persistence in records, is the, the coefficient is something like 0.3. Yeah. So, so the so across all teams, all years, you see a lot of regression to the mean, um, and so you. I mean, but that's with with winning percentage. I'm asking for the ranking, right? So I'm not asking for the. I'm basically asking the question: If I took the rankings well, at the end of last other, season, there's very little other information they're working with, other than, you know, offense regresses less than defense, and so something you would see two teams that were equally good but got there by different means, the mm-hmm. one who got there by offense is going to be higher in the, fork, in the preseason forecast than the team that got there by defense. Yeah, the other thing I was just going to point out, like, of course, I'm happy to talk about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for an entire hour, but when we look at the number of projected wins at 9-1, and one, let's just remember, they were 7-9 and nine last year with a quarterback that threw 30 interceptions, including two of them that directly lost a game. When I say directly, I mean the game was over mm-hmm. after the throw. So all I'm commenting on is you could come up with an easy argument that they were a nine and seven last team masqueraded down by a quarterback that threw 30 picks and that you add Brady and Gronk and all the other players they've added. Maybe nine is too low. Yeah, it, it could be. Talk about two, two highs and two lows. What do you think about uh, the Chiefs being given a 21% chance to win? 
the Super Bowl, not to make it, to win. Sounds high. a little high to Pretty me. Pretty high for any team. <laughs> this is a regressive group here. That We don't like these 21% on the favorites, right, when you have 32 vi- viable candidates. Well, what I mean, might- if I had to pick one team to win the Super Bowl next year, it would be the Kansas well, what State would you Chiefs, give them? But- what would you give them, Chase? I mean, I mean Shane? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I – I mean, obviously, I think it would cap out. At, I, I would give them like more than like maybe the fifteen yeah, percent end yeah. of things or something like that. <clears throat> For what it's worth, Massey Peabody gives them ten. We yeah. give them twenty to make it to the Super Bowl. I mean, they have to win three playoff games, right? So, and I, I it's not like I would give them fifty percent in each one of those or something like that. But that's kind of the start. That's the starting point for how I think about it. Well, even if you give them point, let's say even say you're generous and go point six cubed, which is twenty one point six percent. Let's remember they have to make the playoffs, right? So yeah. you know you can't just say they have to. They win have to make the playoffs, playoffs and get a buy so that they're the only playoffs. playing three and playoff by the games. Way, it could turn out some of those playoff games are on the road. We don't know that they're going to be the one seed. If they're going with a new playoff format, only one team gets a bye. So they could be on the road, which would mean by most measures, they'd probably be an underdog maybe yeah. in one or two of those games. Can I uh, ask you guys, what do you think of the Bengals? Now they have Joe Burrow. They have, the FBI hasn't moved them up much at all. Is that appropriate, more or less? First-year quarterback, they're not, there's, the record for those guys isn't great, even mm. if for a guy like Joe Barrow. I mean, most he's as ready as anybody ever is, gonna, is ever going to be. But And, they, you know, the Bengals were the Bengals, and so they t- typically underperform. They're also in a tough division. So they have a few strikes against them. I mean, I think people are a little long-term bullish on the Bengals, but may, this year may not be the one no. to be looking for. Guys, we're going to run out of time, unfortunately, but I've, I've loved this little – this little fantasy of talking about football. I know. It's great. <laughs> it's so crazy. excited. Uh, for a moment, it felt like real sports conversation. Talk, yeah. Real sports world. Um, that has been another Wharton Moneyball. We have been doing this virtually, and we will continue doing it virtually until we can get back together. But we've had the whole crew here, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, and Cade Massey. We appreciate your listening. We will do this again. Come back and join us next week. Until then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>